Hi, my name is Chris Brennan, and you're listening to the Astrology Podcast. In this episode, I'm going to be talking about astrology and herbalism with Diana Rose Harper and Sarah Corbett. Uh, so, hey, welcome to the show. Hey, Chris. Hey, nice hey to it's back. good to be here. <laughs> yeah, thanks for joining me today. I'm excited about this episode because it's a topic that uh, people have been asking me to do for a while, but I haven't found like the right combination of experts yet to do it with. But so when I heard that the two of you were launching a course on astrology and herbalism next month, uh, it sounded like a, a really good time to do this topic. So thanks a lot for for joining me. Um, so today, just for to give the data, is Wednesday, June 16th, 2021, starting at 12.25 p.m. in Denver, Colorado. And this is the 308th episode of the show. So um, I wanted to start first by just uh, talking a little bit about your backgrounds, um, both in astrology and herbalism, and how the two of you have kind of combined your knowledge into doing what you've been doing with that subject. So what are your backgrounds? Um, well, I'm primarily a practicing herbalist. I'm a clinical herbalist, so I maintain my own clinical practice where I see clients and make products and teach and other things like that. But I initially started studying both herbalism and astrology at about the same time. So I wasn't necessarily studying them together. They just happened to be both part of my worldview at the time that I was developing both of those skill sets. And then later on, I really started focusing on traditional astrology and getting really curious about the seasonal rhythms and the aspects of astrology that really lined up extremely well with what I was seeing in the natural world. Um, and then later went on to begin studying medical astrology. And now I bring that into my work on a clinical level, but also on just a um, bit spending time with plants and getting to know them from an astrological perspective as well. Brilliant. All right. And what about you, Diana? Well, you know, I astrology has been the more primary thing for me for a while, but I grew up in a context where, um, Hanging out with plants was honestly one of the um, most comforting aspects of my day-to-day -day life. Um, like I grew up with a woods for my backyard. I spent a lot of time with trees and a lot of the native plants um, in Southeast Missouri. Um, and when it comes to bridging herbalism, like engaging with plants with astrology, um, that's something that came more recently. Um, like the past five years or so. And then in the past like two years, I've been, you know, developing friendship with Sarah, um, which has brought me even more intentionally into relationships with plants, um, particularly for my own health, right? So going beyond just hanging out with them because plants as people are often more enjoyable to hang out with than human people um, <laughs> and engaging directly with um how plants align with like both human systems on a physical level and then meaning making systems on a more metaphysical level. So awesome. Um, so maybe we should start by just defining our topic then from here. What is herbalism or how how do you define that? Yeah, well, I mean, basically herbalism is the study and practice of the medicinal and therapeutic use of plants. So historically, it was the primary mode of healing until extremely recently, like the last 150 years type of recently. And still a lot of people practice herbalism. Um, so they're engaging with plants primarily for healing, but also just studying them, observing them. Herbalism is going to intersect with things like botany and other naturalist type studies as well. 
Right. As well as it's then uh, more traditional or sometimes holistic modes of medicine uh, in different places around the world. Yeah, every single culture is going to have its own tradition of herbal medicine that's going to be kind of dependent on, you know, of course, what types of issues they tend to experience in their culture. You know, different people are predisposed to different things. Different environments are going to have different plants growing in, in them. Different spiritual contexts tend to intersect with herbalism. So a lot of different cultures will have an approach to herbalism that is much more spiritual or some people might consider like esoteric than what we see in modern herbal practice today. Um, but you know, the first like written record we have of herbal medicine is over 5,000 years old. Um, it was on Sumerian clay tablets. And then you look throughout history and you see that people have always had some type of relationship with plants. And if we hadn't had them for medicine, we probably wouldn't have survived this long as a species. So we really truly did co co-evolve alongside them. Right. That makes sense. And it's interesting in terms of like different plants that are indigenous to different areas and, and the extent to which those get incorporated into indigenous medical and sometimes like religious practices and other things like that. Yeah, definitely. People are going to use what they have until we had a large trade system. You know, our ancestors and people around the world could only access what was in their quote unquote backyard or in the surrounding area. So, you know, as we see later on, especially you know, when we're thinking about how herbalism kind of intersects with astrology and in the Hellenistic era. And at that point, you start seeing in all these different herbals, people sharing plants from other cultures because of trade. Okay. Um, yeah. And, and to the extent that today, I guess, a lot of the herbs that are used are pretty much available worldwide. So there must be a blending of different traditions to some extent that were separate. Although I know that there's still like indigenous um, herbal traditions like Ayurveda from India or Chinese medicine, uh, traditional Chinese medicine in China, what like branch or approach could you like qualify of herbalism do you do you practice? So I tend to practice what is these days called traditional Western herbalism, um, which is basically, you know, it's a lot of Greco-Arabic medicine. Um, it draws on concepts that appear in Ayurveda and traditional Chinese medicine, which predates the concept of traditional Western herbalism by a lot. Um, and traditional Western herbalism. So it like takes concepts from that and then it just kind of throws in a smattering of European folk herbalism. And then that has become the new name for modern Western herbalism as we know it. Um, so a lot of what I practice is influenced by my teachers in that tradition. And then also I try to maintain a strong connection to my ancestral plants, um, from Southwest Asia and North Africa. So I have a little bit of a mix of folk herbalism and modern clinical Western herbalism. Mm -hmm. And modern, modern Western herbalism also, um, draws upon a lot of, um, like indigenous North American herbal practices and the herbal practices that came to this country through chattel slavery and through other um, modes of both uh, forced and optional migration patterns into North America. So um, traditional Western herbalism ends up being um, uh, extremely 
multifaceted and not always super linear in terms of being able to determine lineage when it comes mm-hmm. to particular practices or particular understandings of how specific plants um, can be used medicinally and for other purposes beyond just, you know, pretty ornamentals in your yard. Okay. Um, And maybe this would be a good time to talk about what is the relationship and especially, especially Diana, how you've approached the relationship between astrology and herbalism and to what extent does herbalism depend on astrology or or vice versa? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, herbalism and astrology are not inherently like forced. Like if you're an astrologer, you don't have to know anything about herbalism. And if you're an herbalist, you don't have to know anything about astrology. Um, but one of the things that we get from astrology is this idea that um, planets in particular are responsible for different spheres of life. Um, and different aspects of existence. And so along with that, planets um, take purview over specific plants and specific actions that plants incite whenever humans are in direct engagement with them. Um, so, you know, as like the example that I like to use because my name is involved is roses, right? So, <laughs> you know, roses, which culturally speaking, have a lot of associations with love and beauty and gifting and luxury. Um, they're used in cosmetics. You know, there's all of these different ways that roses embody the sphere of Venus, right? And so through astrology, we can understand a plant like roses in a way that then can apply um, that plant both medicinally and aesthetically to that planetary sphere. Um, you know, my per- like my own like really personal practice when it comes to blending astrology with herbalism is more along those lines. I'm not uh, I'm not personally a clinical herbalist. There's a lot of training that Sarah has done and didn't mention <laughs> that you know like hours and hours like thousands of hours of training when it comes to understanding how plants interact with human physiology um, as well as human psychology in order to comprehend safe uses of those plants interacting with the human body. Um, my own practice is much more about the like the psycho-spiritual component of plants, which for me as an astrologer, I'm constantly thinking about how the language of astrology intersects with psycho-spiritual movement for humans in the world. And so plants add dimensionality and depth to that interaction. Um, and also, you know, as somebody who's, you know, p- coming from the like the the astrological planetary zodiacal perspective, if someone I trust tells me um, nettles are martial, for example, then um, that tells me a lot about that plant because I have a depth of understanding of what Mars is about. Even if I don't have um, like the most PhD level botany comprehension of nettles as uh, you know a spiky green thing that can create rashes, but is also highly nutritious. So, yeah, yeah. So that reminds me of so in the in like ancient Hermetic astrology, there was like a chain of correspondences where each planet had like an archetype, and that archetype. Was like this core, overarching, almost like transcendent idea that could manifest in, in many different ways in the world in general, and um, one of those ways is in certain types of of plants um, that might really resonate with that specific planet. And it seems like that's really the 
um, core like access point for the crossover between astrology and herbalism is the archetypal connection between certain planets and certain plants. Yeah, absolutely. It's like that old adage of as above, so below. Um, and as below, so above. We can understand plants because of planets. We can also understand planets because of plants. Like if we engage with a plant, um, specifically because we understand it to connect to a planet that can actually open up a broader comprehension of that planet, um, especially when it comes to applying that planet's significations beyond the hyper-personal. Um, you know, I think natal astrology is wonderful and amazing and gives us a lot of insight. And also astrology can tell us about um, just like can help us perceive the world differently. And plants, I think, do a really good job at assisting with not necessarily universalizing or globalizing, but taking planetary significations and making them more broadly applicable beyond the hyperpersonal. Right. So it's not just um, astrology is not just um, psychological traits or character traits, but sometimes can manifest in very literal ways in like the properties of plants and like the mm -hmm. impact that that can have upon you by having it in your life or consuming it or or what have you. Exactly. Exactly. What are some good instances? Just obvious ones. You mentioned like Venus as a planet that's associated with the plant, uh, the rose. Mm -hmm. So, what are some other good examples like that of specific planetary correspondences between a, a planet and certain herbs? Well, this is where things get a little tricky because throughout every single piece of literature, for I mean, every source that I've ever pulled on this, they all contradict each other. So, while certain people will say other things, Culpepper will say another, another herbalist will say another thing, it's really hard to find like a reliable resource out there that's just like, hey, here are the correspondences. This is what we know to be true. So, our correspondences that we have arrived to in our work together are very much influenced by our own embodied experience. So, like Venus and roses totally makes sense, but then some herbals will say only red roses are under Venus and white roses are under Jupiter and yellow roses, who knows? So there seems to be a bit of a breakdown in different types of plants as well, different variations of the same plant. Um, one plant that everyone seems to agree on is St. John's wort as being ruled by the sun. Um, and sure, it's got some of those aspects of, you know, it's got really beautiful sunshine yellow disc-shaped, or not quite disc-shaped flowers, but they look like little sunbursts. Um, they're, they tend to grow on south-facing slopes. They tend to grow in full sun. They like the sunshine. They prefer to be like soaking up the sun all day long. Um, when you, squeeze the flowers, there is a compound, a constituent in um, St. John's wort that actually is blood red. So if you squeeze the flowers between your fingers, you'll have this little blood red paste on your fingertips. That's how you know that you have the medicinal type of St. John's wort. So there's another type of St. John's wort that tends to grow in landscapes, which doesn't have that compound that's responsible for so many of its healing benefits. Um, but St. John's Wort, like it has these solar qualities, right? And also how much of its association with the sun comes from the fact that it always blooms at summer solstice or that it always blooms right around St. John's Day. Um, so there, there's a lot of astro-herbal thought that exists that either is contradictory or we just don't know why or how they got to 
the correspondence that they got to. Right. But it seems like, so with that one, for example, one of the access points is what is the appearance of the plant and what then does that connect with in terms of certain planetary archetypes? So for this, it's like the flower is literally like this bright yellow blooming solar looking flower. And so that's probably one of the access points I would assume for connecting it with the sun in some traditions. Definitely. I think Culpepper specifically says like it's under Leo and the dominion of the sun. Um, so he even makes that specific distinction, likely because it was probably growing during Leo season in England and really shining its flowers at that time. So there is that element of where is it growing? What does it look like? What kind of habitat is it in? Does it like to be in moist areas? Does it like to be in dry areas? What kind of other plants does it like to hang out with? Is it growing on its own? Is it growing like climbing up another plant? Is it relying on interdependence to survive? Um, then how does it work in the body? What are its actions? What are its virtues? There are so many different pieces that come into drawing a correspondence. And you have to look at it all holistically because you can't just say every bright, sunshiny flower plant is ruled by the sun because it's not. Right. So there's a lot of nuance that's required. So sometimes it's the appearance, other times it can have to do with the effect. What would be a good example of a planetary correspondence with a specific plant that has more to do with the effect that it has on a person, like when it's used or when it's consumed? Well, St. John's wort actually is a great example of this because it's been extremely studied for the alleviation of depression. Um, and when I say the alleviation of depression, it's, um, a brightening, right? So like different sorts of depression have different, um, causes and symptoms and impacts. Um, right. But with St. John's wort, there's, um, like it's used for like seasonal affective disorder in people who have like, especially winter time seasonal affective disorder because it brings in like a lightening of the body. Like there's a, there's a, um, and when it's applied topically, it's also very warming, right? Like if you use it as an oil, it like brings warmth literally to your tissues. Um, it speeds up detoxification processes in the liver, which is why it can be really important to make sure you're not taking any medications that need to stay in the body longer. If you are also engaging with St. John's wort, um, because St. John's wort will push it out of your body more quickly. But that purification process, that movement process, literally is a lightning of, um, for lack of a better word, sludge. <laughs> um, which when we think about the sun and how the sun dries mud right into just like dirt, that's kind of one of the things that St. John's wort in the body and like in the psychosomatic system does. Um, so it's not just the appearance and the growth habit, but it is also the impacts that it has on the human person. That makes me think of like the sun and its domicile, uh, Leo being opposite to Saturn and Aquarius, um, which is sort of setting up this light dark contrast. And then that's also the contrast with the exaltation of the sun and Aries on the spring, um, spring equinox. Solstice? Equinox. Equinox, Uh, Yeah, yeah, not the summer solstice. The spring equinox when the day and the light is increasing um, versus Saturn having its exaltation in Libra during the fall equinox when the 
nights are getting longer, and so the concept of like like darkness is getting um, increasing or is being raised up. Um, but that's interesting thinking about that in terms of like um, St. John's Wort's effect on depression and just like lightening a person's mood or helping to clear some internal sense of like darkness or something like that. Yeah, bringing the sun, literally bringing the sunshine back into their life. Bringing that sense of warmth, that sense of radiance, that sense of being feeling like safe in your body, feeling okay, be, feeling open and happy. St. John's Wort is incredible at that. Now, in some cases, you know, it's not a cure all for everyone's depression. It's actually really contraindicated with certain things. So definitely look it up if you're curious about St. John's Wort. Um, it can be so solar and energizing and brightening that it can actually induce episodes of mania for people who are predisposed to that. Um, so St. John's Wort, you know, like all herbs to our ancestors and to herbalists of old and even herbalists now, herbs were drugs, you know, until we had standardized medications, all we had was herbs. So that's another thing to think about in the context of how astrology and herbalism intersect. In the past, astrologers might have been physicians. Herbalists would have been cons considered physicians, and a lot of them were astrologers. So the way in which these two things intersect too kind of depends on the cultural context and the time period that you're looking at. But oftentimes, all herbalists were practicing astrology, and so that was obviously a language that they were going to be using to influence the way they thought about and worked with plants. Mm -hmm. Including, you know, how do we harvest plants? Mm -hmm. How do we prepare medicines with plants? And then which plant medicines are appropriate for which people based on astrological factors? And so this is kind of getting more into medical astrology as it intersects with herbalism, um, which astrology and herbalism together do not have to be medicinal in their orientation, like specifically like treating physical or like psycho-spiritual ailments. Um, but like that is one component of astro herbalism is like using astrology to know which herbs are appropriate for which people and which symptoms, which causes of um, dis-ease um, based on a variety of factors that can be discerned through astrological means. Okay. Um, yeah, that seems like a really important component in terms of the overlap with traditional medicine and um, how doctors in the Middle Ages and like early Renaissance used to be trained in astrology as a diagnostic tool in order to like figure out, you know, before we had all this technology, using uh, a way to figure out what's going on with a person and like what is their constitution and what sort of things are going to resonate well with them versus what things might make certain problems worse. And that might tie us into an important discussion topic in terms of the general concept of a person's constitution or temperament. And it seems like a lot of um, this gets tied into ideas of like hot and cold and other temperament theories that become important in terms of figuring out which plants are doing what to a person's body. Yeah, well, and throughout the history, I mean, you're absolutely right. Astrologers and physicians were having to learn astrology in order to make that diagnosis. And that became like a really big thing in the Renaissance period and throughout the middle or the medieval period. And then it just kind of fell away as the as astrology was suppressed. Um, but in terms of um 
those connections to like understanding the chart and understanding what might be good for the person in front of you through looking at their chart. The natal chart can tell us so much about a person, as we know as astrologers, but from a physical perspective, it can help us to understand things like temperament, um, which ultimately the idea of temperament is some people will refer to it as temperament. Some people will refer to it as constitution. Some people will refer to it as body types. They all pretty much mean the same thing. Um, but the temperament scheme kind of evolved from the humoral doctrine, which, you know, there was the Hippocratic school of thought around the humors, the four humors, which then Galen refined into the temperaments. And at that point, when Galen was doing that work, it wasn't really intersecting with astrology. The concept of understanding temperament through the chart was grafted into astrology later on. Um, so there were these concepts in medicine and philosophy and astrology were evolving at the same time, but temperament didn't like exclusively come from astrology. You can calculate someone's temperament through their astrological chart. You can observe transits and progressions to see what how their temperament might be being influenced and might be being changed by external factors. Um, but understanding temperament through the chart can be super helpful especially if you don't know that person. Because ideally, a physician would be able to just look at someone and get a feel for their predispositions and do like some narrative interviewing with them to figure out their temperament. But if you've never seen someone ever before and they're just walking into your practice for the first time, having their chart as a baseline can give you a lot of information to then guide that um, interview process with them so you can really refine their temperament and figure out which herbs or lifestyle or dietary um, treatments might really exacerbate their condition or which ones they might feel really akin to and might help them to resolve whatever's going on with them either more gracefully or easily or quicker. Mm -hmm. And just to clarify, because I think it maybe is important for us to even define what temperament is when we're talking about these things for listeners who maybe are unaware. Um, but it's this basic idea that of, you know, we have the qualities hot, dry, cold, and moist. And if there is a predominance of one of those in your chart, which you can discern via planetary placement, your ascendant, that kind of thing, um, then that indicates like a predisposition towards that particular direction, like towards those polarities. Um, and plants themselves carry these qualities as well. Um, so certain plants are more moist, certain plants are more drying, certain point plants are hot like peppers, and certain plants are cooling <laughs> like milky oats or something like that, right? And so if we understand what someone's baseline temperament is and how that temperament is being influenced by factors like Sarah was just saying, like um, transits, progressions, other aspects of timing techniques that can um, influence how the body and the being is feeling, then we can also understand which plants, including food plants and spice plants <laughs> um, that we're just incorporating into our meals um, will exacerbate or alleviate um, particular conditions. And so what's interesting about this is it kind of ties in with other aspects of astroherbalism that are less, again, physically medically oriented, but thinking about remedies and remediation. Like I know um, remediation is a topic that you touched on, Chris, I think in the podcast episode with Austin, 
on astrological magic, right? Right. Um, and so, you know, this idea of remedy of like um, making something better for someone, um, astral herbalism can be incorporated into that with, you know, care and expertise, um, both for physical systems, but also for, you know, like life experiences. Like if you have a really intense Mars situation, you can incorporate astral herbalism to be like, I need a stronger Mars, so I'm going to start eating more spicy food. Or I need to not be so choleric, which is one of the temperaments. Um, and so I'm deliberately going to not eat spicy food and maybe focus on more like Venusian or lunar herbs and foods. Um, there's this like balancing um, of existing that is available through incorporating astrology and herbalism and like plant understandings. Yeah, that reminds me that's one of the things that seems to cross a lot of different boundaries in terms of the different astro medical traditions was the notion of this like holistic notion of health that um excesses or imbalances in certain areas of a person's life or constitution is sometimes what can lead to ailments or, or sickness and that a lot of the focus seems to be on trying to balance out or counteract things that get too extreme or too out of whack in order to bring them into more of a moderate level, and that that's like the goal for health and wellness in both some of the traditional Western traditions as well as in um, like the Indian Ayurvedic tradition, where they have a different temperament system, but their goal is still sort of balancing out those temperaments so that you don't have an excess of something. Well, and even in the Ayurvedic system, their temperaments, their, the doshas, is still based off of an elemental paradigm, which is what the Western, if you want to call it Western, I mean, it's really like Greek and Arabic, but we'll say Western um, notion of temperament looks like. There, you know, the four temperaments, the four main ones, sanguine, choleric, melancholic, phlegmatic, correspond to air, fire, earth, and water. And air is a combination of hot and moist. Fire is a combination of hot and dry. Earth is cold and dry. Water is cold and moist. So different writers throughout the ages would look at these different temperaments and would say, okay, well, you know, spring it corresponds with the sanguine temperament because spring is hot and moist. So if someone has a sanguine temperament and they're being influenced by this excess of hot and moist energy that's happening in the springtime, they might start to have these types of hot and moist issues. How can we counterbalance that? Well, we can do that through antipathy by doing the opposite, giving them the opposite of what hot and moist types of things look like. Um, or if maybe they need a little bit of help having a little bit of hot and moistness, maybe we're in the middle of fall and that heat and uh, moisture is fading away. Now we're going to want to do something sympathetic to their constitution to help them stay in balance. So it's kind of, you know, it's this fine line of fighting, of finding a set point of baseline. There really is no such thing as true balance when it comes to your health. But with the temperaments, we're consistently trying to help people kind of get there and stay in the condition that they feel most vital and alive and vibrant in. Okay. So let's say for somebody that has, for example, an excessively fiery or let's say Mars-like temperament, what would be just an example of like an herb that would be cooling or that would be the opposite of that, that would perhaps counteract if somebody was having even a strong Mars transit or something, and 
um, having an excess of like a fiery type of energy that needs to be moderated to some extent? Yeah, so if there's an excess of Mars going on, which Mars transits can be pretty uncomfortable, they often are. Um, my autoimmune disease coincides with a pretty intense Mars transit. Um, but with Mars, you're if we're wanting to do something antipathical to that, we're looking at things that are cold and moist, right? Or we're looking at things that are slightly cooling. So we might consider Venusian remedies, and we might consider lunar remedies. We wouldn't necessarily want to bring in Saturn, even though Saturn is definitely cold and dry. Um, we would instead want to soothe that Mars. So from a lunar perspective, maybe we would consider something like milky oats, which I know a lot of people consider to be ruled by Mercury, but I firmly disagree. And from a Venusian perspective, we might consider really soft, soothing things. Um, you know, things like roses, of course, that we already mentioned, um, but also different activities that feel more Venusian or feel more lunar. It doesn't always have to be about what we're imbibing. It can be about maybe taking some more cool baths or engaging in a soothing skincare routine. Maybe you're having a Mars issue that's showing up as like hot inflamed tissues, things like that. So it doesn't have to be super, um, we're having this going on. We're going to use X herb to help that. It can be more of, you could even just spend some time with a plant. Mm-hmm. Just sit with a plant. Um, yeah. Right. Even, so that really gets us. Or go ahead. Sorry. Oh, I was just going to say, even just like observing how a plant um, exists in the world can be really helpful. Um, so, for example, like I grow roses myself here. Um, and um, one of the like galaxy brain moments that I've had about roses in the past, this was actually several years ago, but was just thinking about um, the balance between Venus and Mars that is actually embodied by um, some of the most, the world's most fragrant roses. Like generally speaking, this is not true across the board, but generally speaking, roses that are super fragrant and so therefore very attractive to bees and human noses and things like that, they'll have really, really intense thorns. And thorns as a plant part are martial because they're sharp and pokey and they literally draw blood. And so, you know, understanding, like if you're having like Mars issues or even Venus issues, like if you're having like an over, like you're over-connecting, you're over-concerned with creating harmony um, with other people, you're over-concerned with relationships to the point that you are um, being over-consumed. Understanding that literally the rose plant itself carries a martial balance to it through the thorns. So you don't necessarily even have to go all the way to, um, you know, for example, like nettles or brambles, or I don't know, what's another example of like a super harsh... I mean, uh, garlic plant. and peppers and <laughs> yeah. basically anything with sharp, stabby edges is probably ruled mm-hmm. by Mars. <laughs> yeah, you don't have to go all the way to the point of being really sharp and stabby in order to balance your Venus. You can just cultivate an understanding that certain aspects of martial virtues actually support the Venusian. Um, and so, you know, that kind of ties into... Um, like aspects of astral herbalism that are less directly medicinal in terms of consuming as drugs, right? As medicines, which is engaging with the virtues of the planets through plants and the virtues of plants through planets um, in a way that facilitates deeper understanding of how um, planetary influences are in constant searching for of like towards homeostasis, I guess. Um, and that can be reflected through like vegetation. Okay. 
Um, this is kind of making me think of just the general concept of um, sympathetic magic and the notion of like trying to invoke the archetype of a planet or a thing that you want to bring into your life more by sort of surrounding yourself with different forms of that. And one of those that we're talking about is, you know, plants, specific plants, but also doing certain types of activities or um, listening to certain types of music or, or what have you in order to really invoke that. It seems like that's part of the underlying theory that you're working with here as well. Absolutely. Definitely. And I mean, throughout sympathetic magic traditions, you'll see plants show up like that. Um, where you can use plants that are of a certain planet to make a talisman, or um, I know some, I know a blacksmith who produces different things, or he'll like quench the product that he's making, depending on the planetary signature he's trying to imbue that with. He'll quench it in a liquid that was made with certain herbs to help fortify that planetary character. So, and even in herbalism, we have a practice of sympathy. It's called homeopathy. <laughs> Homeopathy is a practice of taking a very, very, very micro dilution of a plant that would be sympathetic to an issue you're having. For example, if you're having poison ivy, you would take a really, really tiny dilution of poison ivy. <laughs> so uh, homeopathy is a practice that also uses this like, cures like um, type of sentiment for treatment. Okay. Um, well, it's really interesting concept just from an astrological, just putting my astrologer's hat on that I've always been interested and curious about, but just that notion of sympathetic magic. And it's kind of like cheat codes for reality and for like human existence, where sometimes if you have something, um, it, it goes back to that old like Mesopotamian tradition of like propitiation rituals almost sometimes, where in some instances when they would see a bad Omen, astrological omen coming up, they would like substitute it or deliberately try to take on the energy proactively in their life in some way in order to allow it to manifest in their life. Because it was almost like they were acknowledging that the manifestation was inevitable in some way, but that if they could channel it deliberately, then um, they might be able to have more control over it than just having it as something that comes out of nowhere and sort of happens and, and sweeps them away. Mm hmm. Well, and when we apply that to something like herbalism or medical astrology, that can give us a really beautiful lens to work through to actually practice true preventative care, mm -hmm. which is yeah. more healing and going to be more beneficial for the individual than waiting until something happens. Like, I know I'm going to have a pretty big Mars transit next year. I'm already thinking about what I need to do to pacify my Mars. And to direct that energy towards something that's going to be more beneficial and hopefully not something that's going to cause me to have a physical response that I've had in the past when I have this Mars return every couple of years. Um, you know, medical astrology can be used in that way. You can watch someone's chart to identify when something might come up, and then you can um, give them the proper support herbally or otherwise from a magical perspective, whatever you know, whatever way you're approaching that, you can give that person true support to help improve their experience of being human. And in that way, astroherbalism is absolutely a cheat code to having a better experience in a human body. Mm -hmm. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. And it's, um, it's interesting to consider too how, you know, as astrologers and like tracking transits, tracking cycles, um, you know, like I don't know. I'm thinking, for example, about the upcoming Venus retrograde in Capricorn later this year. Um, December. Yeah, and starting in December. 
and how that retrograde um, is a continuation of experiences that I had in 2013. Yeah, getting my getting my years correct, like end of 2013, there was a right. Venus retrograde in Capricorn. And remembering what that particular winter experience was like, and then using using what I learned then and what I've learned since then to prepare myself for this particular retrograde that's coming up, which will have a lot of differences because the skies are very different in other ways, but will also have repetitions. So it's like to use astrology and to be able to comprehend um, Venus specifically, Capricorn specifically, Venus and Capricorn together as it as it stands for me as an individual human person. And then with astroherbalism, I can think in terms of like what would have been really helpful for me at that time, but I didn't have the knowledge or resources in order to apply that to that experience back then. Like what do I know now that I can apply that can um, mitigate, alleviate, create ease there? And part of that has been a process. And, you know, this is kind of delving, like kind of moving more towards um an aspect of astroherbalism that we haven't touched on yet, which is creating relationships versus just this equals this, so I'm going to do this, right? So, you know, since, you know, part of why this is relevant, I natally have Venus in Capricorn in the first house. And so when Venus is retrograding in my first house, it's more personal. <laughs> um, and understanding what happened back then and understanding what is coming up and understanding everything that's happened since then that has actually deepened my relationship with Venus and the sphere of the Venusian, as well as the relationships that I have built with, you know, beings that fall under Venus's purview. All of that, all of that relational building contributes to a deepened understanding, which then contributes to a deepened ease because there are relationships that have been built, if that makes any sense. I don't know if how I'm explaining this is as sensical outside of my mouth as it is inside of my head, but that's, that is, I think, a core part of astroherbalism that we haven't talked about yet, which is like the relationship component of getting to know plants, getting to know planets, not just because of what they do, but you know, as a part of understanding planetary virtues as balancers to planetary vices could maybe be one way of putting that. Okay. Um, and it sounds like part of what you're also alluding to a little bit is like a view of like the cosmos in the sense of like animism or being mm -hmm. alive alive in some way. Yeah, hundred percent, hundred percent. Where it's like, um if if you can engage with a planet, a plant, a being, an animal, whatever, um, from a standpoint of you have things, you like you have intelligence, you have knowledge, you have things that you teach, and that is part of your existence is to be an embodiment of your of the things that you like by existing that you default teach the world. Um, and then, you know, be like, I want to get to know what it is that you teach, what it is that you represent, what it is that you're responsible for. And through that getting to know, be in a place where you can, um, I don't know, like reciprocate is strange to think about in terms of the planets because the planets don't need anything from us. <laughs> um, like they're not, you know, 
shoving hands in our faces demanding alms or something. Um, but to understand that there is a level of um, like like paying it forward could maybe be one way of of thinking about it, where it's just like if I understand, say, uh, the virtues of Venus through the virtues of uh, the rose plant, how can I be a spreader of those virtues through my embodiment? An emissary, yeah, an emissary, um, a an ambassador, almost, um, in a way that helps to like propagate, to use a plant term, right? To propagate those virtues um, in positive and constructive ways, like in my personal life and then outside of my personal life. Um, and I think, you know, especially when we think about um, reciprocity with plants, which can be kind of like weird to think about, it's like reciprocity with plants is facilitating that plant's survival. So berries have a baked in reciprocity structure and that if you eat berries, and you're a bear or a bird, like the next time you take a poo, you are spreading the seeds of that plant. And that's like your reciprocity. You're like, I eat you. And then I thank you by like making more of you out in the world. And I think that's one of the things that we can consider whenever we're even thinking about planets, getting to know planets, understanding the meanings of the planets, and then being like, cool, I would like to contribute to an increase of Jupiterian virtues because Jupiter is amazing. And so what does it mean for me to embody Jupiterian virtues in general, also maybe in my life, according to my chart, and also understanding Jupiterian virtues through a plant like burdock can facilitate um, a broader and more pragmatic and actionable way to embody Jupiterian virtues than just thinking about like philosophy and like magnanimity and gregariousness. It's like, what does it mean to be supportive of systems on a physical level, which is what burdock does? And engaging with a plant like burdock is going to help you have a felt sense of what Jupiter is like. Astrology can feel really up in the air and out there and you're reading book after book after book and it's like, wait, what does that mean? I don't really know. And then if you engage with one of these plants, you can actually have this physical sensation of what that planet feels like. And for me as an herbalist, who's primarily approaching the world as an herbalist, I love astrology, I practice astrology, it's great, but I'm not first and foremost an astrologer. When I was able to make that link of when I'm engaging with a plant like a burdock, I'm engaging with Jupiter. That helped me actually solidify the knowledge that I had learned through years of study and reading all of these different books into something that was truly felt, um, which for me is makes it so much easier for me to articulate what Jupiter is like versus just repeating some correspondences and some books. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's more tangible or to give a more accessible example, like, you know, eating like a ghost pepper or something like that and fe <laughs> yeah. feeling feeling what Mars tastes like internally when you, mm -hmm. you know, eat it. That's a very um, tangible and memorable uh, experience mm -hmm. of a, mm -hmm. a Mars type experience or archetype. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Definitely. Definitely a ghost pepper. That'll make you feel hot and spicy. <laughs> very yeah. hot and spicy, extremely uncomfortable and kind of like you want to die. Or fight someone. So or both. <laughs> yeah. So that links yeah. back to and reminds me of what's really interesting in Ptolemy's model of the planets in like the second century Alexandria is he associated um, Mars especially with hot 
um, type, type archetypes and heating, like an excess of hot type things versus he associated Saturn with an excess of cold things, like extreme cold. And those were like two ends of a spectrum. And that was part of the reason why he qualified them as malefics, because he said that they tended towards those extremes of hot and cold, whereas his definition of benefic was that which is more moderate and doesn't tend towards extremes as much. Um, so that might be a good access point as well of just thinking about extremes of hot and cold as like an easily accessible access point for understanding certain plants and how some of us natally, if we have like a prominent Mars, might have an excessively hot constitution, whereas if we have Saturn prominent, we might have an excessively cold constitution or what have you. Yeah, and depending on the houses, you know, if you have something in the first, sixth, eighth. Um, or 12th, it might be a little bit more impactful on your constitution. There's a lot of different things that go into calculating temperament, but that aspect of those four qualities is definitely a big part of that. Um, you know, Mars is hot and dry in an excess way, while the sun is hot and dry, and it can become excessive, but not nearly to the extent of what Mars can create. Mars is like uncomfortable heat. The sun is like a really pleasant middle of summer day in the sunshine. It's balmy, not blistering. Right. And it's even it's even fun to think about the extremes as like, is it life promoting or is it life negating? Right. Like warmth and coolness are both facilitative of comfort until you get to their extremes. And then it's like, yeah, Antarctica with no clothes, death. Like Death Valley with no clothes or water, death. <laughs> um, but those extremes also then have their their import and their uses, where it's like, you know, we've talked about um, you know, the importance of balance and homeostasis and things like that. But uh, like these more extreme plants and planets also have functions and lessons inherent to them, right? Where it's like, if you're in an extreme environment, you also maybe need extreme um, measures to survive that environment. A good so, plant example of this is actually thinking about, um, <clears throat> you know, extreme conditions. Aloe, mm -hmm. aloe vera is a lunar plant. And it grows in the hot desert. Mm -hmm. Like it has adapted to create more lunar virtues and to cultivate what it needs by storing moisture and mucilage in itself, even though it's in like a total martial mm -hmm. environment. Yeah. And aloe so plants do that too. Aloe vera is kind of like the moon. It's like the moon in Aries. Mm -hmm. Could be like, you know, we can use astrological language to, um, explicate plants in a way that if you are astrologically fluent supports your comprehension of plants and then if you're plant fluent you can use plant language to comprehend astrological concepts so i think aloe vera is like a perfect example of that where it's like the fleshiness of the plant and the fact that it is literally cooling and very moistening and extremely soothing, especially to hot, dry conditions. It's like, what does it mean to understand the moon as a mitigator to Mars? Right. Because if you get like a, you have a Mars transit and you get like a sunburn mm -hmm. uh, that's like an excessively heating um, thing on your skin, then Aloe, which is more of a cooling plant, is like a great antidote as the counteraction to that. 
Mm-hmm. Definitely. Um, that actually makes me think of one time just giving anecdotes to ground this in some like astrological transits. But I had a like several years ago, secondary progressed Mars squared my sun for like a you know a couple of years as it does when it's passing by. And I developed this skin condition where I would go outside and get sunburns within like 10 minutes. Um, so it was like a very specific and very literal manifestation of like secondary progressed Mars squaring my sun and Having sunburns just like constantly, so that I couldn't go outside. Um, have either of you had things like that that were like medical conditions or or something like that that came up that were just obvious manifestations of some transit or some placement that you've had? Yeah, actually, this is how I got into medical astrology. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, so I had come across medical astrology in my reading over the years. You know, you'll see like a little blurb on it. I think you have a little blurb on it in your book, Chris, just like very briefly, or, or someone does. Um, so people will talk about it and then no one will go into in depth with it. But the the time I got into herbalism and astrology was when I was a teenager and I was going through a major chronic illness and no one knew what was wrong with me and I couldn't get a diagnosis and I was just sick all the time. I later ended up being diagnosed with celiac disease, but um, a few years ago, I had a reading with a medical astrologer. I was having some health issues coming up again. Didn't know what was going on. Um, Had a reading with Claire Gallagher, who's an incredible medical astrologer, has a book coming out on it next year, I believe. And she was going through my past transits, and she pulled up my chart of when the around the time that I got sick with celiac, which was in like March of 2017. And I had just had Mars go past my Mars, which is conjunct Mercury and Aquarius in the seventh. And then Mars pinged my Saturn and my Sun and Venus in Pisces. And then Neptune just nestled right into Pisces forever. And I can't wait till it just moves right along. Um, so I had this experience that lined up perfectly of developing an autoimmune, which is a, a excess of Mars, basically, you know, developing mm-hmm. this major inflammatory condition that then when Neptune settled in, no one could get a diagnosis. No one yeah. could figure out what was going on. I was like the mystery case. And it took almost two years. I would be curious actually to huh. look back. A Mars at cycle. My, yeah. <laughs> it took a Mars cycle to discern. <laughs> Yeah, I hate Neptune uh, type afflictions because it's those things that are just like mysterious and that you have a hard time figuring out, but it's like something, but nobody can identify it at least for a long time. Also, yeah, do you, did you mean 2007 and not 2017? Oh my gosh, I actually got those dates totally wrong. It was 2011. Oh, okay. 2010 yeah, was, and 11. Yeah, yeah. no, my yeah. bad. <laughs> I was like, it was longer ago than that. <laughs> yeah, that, no, I had that yeah. medical astrology reading in like 2017 or 2018. Yeah. So that was the timeline I was thinking of. Thank you for correcting me. Mm-hmm. Um, but then ever since whenever I have a Mars return, it goes past that same thing and I tend to have an autoimmune flare. Mm-hmm. And now that I've observed this for a decade, um, I've become acutely aware of what my body needs during that time, um, which is why I'm already thinking about the next time Mars decides to go past all of that again. Because until Neptune moves out of Pisces, it has a firm, well, loose and nebulous and sometimes confusing hold on my eighth house, which is the house of, it tends to be associated with chronic health conditions if you have a chronic health condition. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, what about you, Diana? Have you had any like medical 
experiences and that have been very literal manifestations in relation to like transits or chart things? Yeah. I mean, most recently, um, my progressed moon moved through Capricorn, which is also my first house. Um, like my natal first house, it is currently my progressed 12th house. Um, super cute. And um, that transit came with a lot of, um, this was also um, like the progressed moon moving through Capricorn was also um, at the beginning, my progressed balsamic moon, my progressed new moon, and then my pro progressed, like I'm almost to waxing crypt. I'm at, I'm at Crescent now. Yeah, solidly waxing Crescent. Thank God. Um, but that coincided with really extreme burnout and um, a discovery that my, like essentially my body was not absorbing sufficient nutrients and was not processing nutrients and toxins sufficiently. And that manifested as a skin condition. Like it's a skin condition that I've had since childhood, but has um, cycles of flare. And this has been the, um, it was the most significant flare that I've had since I was a child. Um, and the moon, um, the moon is responsible for digestion processes and the absorption of nutrients and like how we nourish, um, like how we do receive nourishment. Um, and then it's in fall in Capricorn, ruled by Saturn, is my first house, my skin, which is, you know, it's like the skin is a combination of Saturnian and Venusian. It's Saturnian in terms of it being a structure that is a boundary, um, Venusian in terms of like beauty and radiance. Um, but that like progressed moon through Capricorn came with this um, skin condition that is connected to insufficient um, absorption of nutrients and insufficient processing of toxins. Um, and along with that, the Saturn-Pluto conjunction um, forever ago, last year, um, occurred on my Venus, which is in my Capricorn first house. Okay. So that combination of factors was just very not cute. <laughs> we, we were um, doing a lot of things. We were doing a lot of things. So <laughs> like milky oats, I was, I was consuming milky oats as part of a blended infusion or like a combination infusion every single day. I was also drinking a lot of celery juice and celery is lunar and that was helpful. Um, but also just really adjusting uh, my diet and lifestyle to be more nourishing. So like more rest and more nutrient dense foods and the elimination of foods that, um, can contribute to malabsorption of nutrients, also supplementation, right? Because food enough was not sufficient for my body to be getting what it needed. Right. This is um, just reminding me how much I like, I love secondary progressions and the secondary progressed like lunation cycle. Um, and I actually just noticed on uh, Twitter the other day that Peter from astroseek.com just like announced that he integrated like a new secondary progressed lunation. Um, calculator that'll just like calculate all of your That's phases incredible. for you. Um, Peter, so, Peter is such a gift. Like, I know he's really amazing. Like he's, he's incredible. Just, like, programming stuff like crazy. I think Demetra George asked him if he could program this for mm -hmm. like a workshop she's doing because that's a big technique that she focuses on. Um, incredible. But it's just it actually just made me glance at my own secondary progressed phase, and I just realized I'm literally at the exact um, secondary progressed full moon. Oh. Um, that literally just went exact like in the past week, which is kind of striking because I was just thinking back and actually posted something um, the other day about back at my time at Project Hindsight when I was like a 22 year old astrologer 14 years ago, and that's exactly when my 
um, secondary progressed new moon took place uh, starting that that cycle. Wow, that's incredible. I love that. So, <laughs> I love funny. that. Um, question for you, if you want to share, have you noticed anything, like can you think of anything that would be related to nourishment in your body related to that progressed full moon? Um, just, I, I mean, it's hard uh, because just a, a sense of having a lot going on. Like it feels like I'm definitely, I've reached a high point in my career, but also activity. And uh, Demetra was telling me the other night that I needed to like take it easy more after podcasts so as to not burn myself out perhaps. So mm -hmm. I don't know if that's that answers your question. Yeah. A little bit. A little bit. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, Are you craving cheese? This is like this is me geez. being funny. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, I'm always craving cheese, so that's different. But uh, okay, other things that we need to touch on. One of them for medical astrology. I know this is verging into like just a whole thing on medical astrology, which is a whole <laughs> thing on it in of itself. Yeah, but that'd it be seems three like, episodes. <laughs> right. Yeah. And I and I did do one very early on with Lee Lehman on medical astrology that people can check out for a sort of broad overview of that topic from a traditional standpoint. Um, but it did seem like maybe the the sixth house and the twelfth house are a little bit relevant here. And I was just curious if or to what extent you take that into account sometimes when you're trying to think about um, either, you know, temporary herbal uh, regimens or ongoing ones that might be useful for a person in terms of the types of um, you know the sixth and twelfth house traditionally are like the sometimes afflictions or illnesses that a person might be predisposed to um, in their life, and I was wondering if that comes into play or if other first house things maybe come into play in terms of the body and the physical and mental constitution. I know, like you know, Marsilio Ficino famously wrote a whole book on Saturn and how he had Saturn as the ruler of his chart and the different things that he had to do in order to sort of offset and work with that more Saturnian constitution. Um, here's his yeah. chart really quickly. He had Aquarius rising with like Saturn in Aquarius in the first house, mm -hmm. and so his thing was feeling like he had an excess of kind of Saturn type things and how to offset and deal with that in different ways. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I bet he had pretty terrible circulation. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it was probably cold all the time. When I'm looking at a chart from a medical astrology perspective to then identify herbs that are going to be most supportive for that person on a physical, emotional, mental, how you know, every spectrum, I look at every single house. So I was taught to um see physical astrology in every single house. So I'll, you know, use traditional significations as well, but I'll also think about how those traditional significations may intersect intersect with their physical experience. But the sixth house, the eighth house, the twelfth, and the first are definitely really, really important. Um, so my kind of process is, you know, what are their big three? Looking at the sun, moon rising, really focusing on the ascendant, um, to get an idea of kind of what their experience is in this meat suit. Um, and then considering looking at the houses and saying, well, what do they have anything in the sixth or the eighth house? If not, where are the rulers of that house? Like there's so many different things that you can break down to see, to try to discern, um, the source of maybe a medical issue that's going on. But to use like a grounded example, so I'm a Leo rising. Um, and I have the sun conjunct Saturn in the eighth. So my son's not absolutely thrilled with its life. Um, so my 
health concerns tend to be more related to my first house and to my eighth house. While the sixth house, I have sixth house in Capricorn, I have nothing there. Um, there's Except the generational planets. Yeah. Ex- it, so there's nothing, no traditional planets are there. Um, so when I'm thinking about how Capricorn, in the sixth house Capricorn manifests for me, I'm thinking about what are the routines that and like structures that I have in my life that help to break or make my health. Um, how can I build structures? How can I do the things that uh, Capricorn is really good at to help to ensure the health of my overall body? So that's how I'll kind of think about that house um, for my own chart or you know other houses that are traditionally associated with medical astrology. If there's nothing really going on there, I'll consider maybe the associations of that house and how that's going to impact the individual. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Whereas I was just going to say, like for me, it's like I have the ruler of the ascendant in the first conjoined Neptune. Um, and then I have my two lamps in the 12th house, right? My sun and moon in the 12th. Um, and at least for me, when it comes to like navigating my health, a lot of it is actually um, the support of others helping me to perceive me because of how challenging it can be for me to perceive me, right? Like, you know, when I say I have Neptune conjoined the ruler of my ascendant, it's less than a degree. (laughs) Mm. Um, You know, it's not a really wide orb here. So it's, it can be hard for me to fully self-perceive. Add on the, the luminaries in the 12th house, like understanding what it is that I am doing or not doing that is supportive for me can be really challenging because I kind of just end up like, I'm just going to check out and I'll be over here in like fantasy land, like pretending I live in an ashram, like, please, nobody talk to me. Um, but it's through actually the ruler of my 12th house, Jupiter, in my 7th house in Cancer, opposite my Neptune-Saturn conjunction. It's the wisdom of other people that actually supports me in understanding what I might need to do for my health. The ruler of my sixth house also happens to be in the twelfth house, right? So I have a Gemini sixth house and I have Mercury and Sagittarius in the twelfth. And so there again, it's like hard for me to fully access independently in a conscious mind way. Um, But if I am doing twelfth house activities to support the rest of my system, so like meditation and things like that, that's really helpful. It's hard for me to build those habits because I have a Gemini sixth house and my ruler is in the twelfth. So again, working with people want in like a like a partnership kind of way, ruler of those things in the seventh, ends up being really supportive for my health in the long run. Um, and that relationship, that relationship building, sorry, the trash truck is going by. Um, that relationship building isn't just about other human people for me, right? Where it's like developing direct relationships with the planets themselves actually is super supportive and helpful. Like the, um, like literally spending time meditating 12th house on planetary virtues as a way to build relationships. Seventh house really supports me in terms of, um, being able to feel concrete in my incarnational suit. Um, and, you know, obviously plants are part of part of that experience for me. That makes me think of so much of the sort of mind-body distinction sometime in the chart and, and when something is 
you know, affecting the physical body or when it's affecting the mental body or whatever you want to call it, but sometimes the interchange or the relationship between the two. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and another thing about medical astrology too is that just because you're having a transit or just because you have a needle placement doesn't necessarily mean that it's always going to manifest as something really tangible or uncomfortable. Um, you know, like when you showed that the chart of that guy who has Saturn and Aquarius in the first house, my first instinct is like, well, he probably has really bad circulation. But if I looked at the rest of the chart, there might be something else there that stands out or something that mitigates that. Um, so one of the beautiful things about understanding your chart and understanding some plants that are associated with the really strong for better or for worst planets in your chart, you can help to understand when maybe certain predispositions might come out and how to mitigate them. You can understand, um, you know, your own cycles and patterns and how they're mirrored in the cycles and patterns of the plants that you have a special affinity to. There's so many different ways that you can combine this work. Mm-hmm. Um, like Diane, I love that you were just, we talked a lot about Jupiter being um, in the seventh for you and how you need support from other people and how so much of the work that Diana and I are doing now is as a result of us being in relationship with each other to care mm-hmm. for each other. Yep. Like I was one of Diana's astrology clients. She was one of my herbal clients. Now we're bringing that together onto in a collaborative capacity. Mm-hmm. Um, but so much of the work that I was doing with Diana as an herbalist was helping her find relational support with specific plants. Mm-hmm. Like burdock was a big one that Huge. you were working with last year. Yeah. Um, Agrimony to- too, which is another Jupiterian mm-hmm. herb. It supports the liver. So, yeah. What is uh, red clover good for? Red clover is typically associated with Venus Mm -hmm. because it's slightly moistening. I mean, it's not really like, it's not like mucilaginous or anything, but it's often used for the lungs and the respiratory tract to have like a slightly moistening effect on the respiratory tract. It's also an alternative. um, So it helps with metabolic wastes. And it's a lymphatic herb, so it's helping mm-hmm. to move the waters of the body, which is very Venusian and sometimes lunar. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, there's a local apothecary that I go to in Denver called Apothecary Tinctura, and they, um, one of the people there recommended red clover for some like acne issues that I was like suddenly mm-hmm. having as an adult, which is weird because I was fine in my 20s. And uh, for some reason, like red clover has been a really great sort of medicinal herb to take as a supplement uh, occasionally or as a tea for for mm-hmm. that. And I was always curious what the properties of it were and why it worked, seemed to work at least so well for my constitution. Yeah, well, and that's lymphatic. that alternative lymphatic aspect mm-hmm. of it, helping to move impurities and waste out of the body. Because typically when something's showing up on the skin, it means that there's something else going on internally. So um, that would be that red clover action. It'd be interesting to look at your chart to see if there's something in there that points to it or a particular transit that brought that up. Or also sometimes we just love plants. I yeah, love red plants, clover. So- <laughs> red clover is amazing. That's actually one that I've been using for my own skin condition as tea as well. Okay. Um, but this is actually bringing up something like, you know, if we want, if you want to, if you feel comfortable, Chris, we could maybe take a glance at your chart. But I actually posted something on Instagram recently about relationships with plants. Um, And there were so many really incredible 
comments that people were leaving. And there was one in particular that um, someone was like, I've been obsessed with lavender, like the plant and the color for like basically my entire life. I find it so calming and soothing. I have a lot of anxiety, like that kind of thing. And, you know, she didn't know, she didn't, she didn't know like what is lavender associated with, like what, how could this relate astrologically? And so I just commented like, well, lavender is a mercury plant. It helps clear, you know, I didn't say this in the comment, but lavender is mercurial in part because it clarifies the nervous system, which can be really like mind clarifying. And then um, that clarification of the nervous system then allows the nervous system to calm down. So it's like, you know, if you're having the kind of anxiety that's just like, there's too much, there's too much, there's too much. Lavender is just like, let's just get some of this out of the way. So that way we can just be here with what we actually need to be concerned with. And that particular person had like four things in Virgo, including okay. Jupiter. Interesting. Which um, lavender so has of... also been associated with Virgo by certain mm-hmm. astro herbalists throughout yeah. the ages. And she has a relationship with a plant that supports those aspects of her chart that can lead to disbalance without having to have had intentionally done that. So if there's something in your chart, Chris, that's like, yeah red clover or like Venusian things for your skin, then that can be an interesting way to just see planetary influence reflected in the fact that like we live our charts even if we don't mean to. Right. Um, Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, it's also reminding me a little bit of um, something that was mentioned by Claire Moon in the last episode I did earlier this month where I asked her what was the first thing she looks at in a chart lineation. And one of the things she mentioned um, which is a good answer, was just that little box like on the Astro Deans charts, which shows you your um, uh, modalities and your elemental makeup mm-hmm. and if you have an yeah. excess of planets. So I kind of pulled that up actually really quick with mine to like make that point. But here's my chart in Placidus, but in the bottom left, you can see that little box that just has mm-hmm. the, um, you know, it shows what planets are in fire signs, which ones are in air signs, which are in earth and which are in water. And you can kind of Get a quick, especially if a person has like a real um, emphasis on certain elements, like a quick at a quick glance, you can sort of see that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's it, and also brings up another related point, which I we were going to get into, and Sarah actually sent me an image of, but that is the um, the zodiacal zodiac man, or there's like different names for it in different eras of astrology or different cultures, but it's the association between certain parts of the body. And certain zodiacal signs, um, starting with the first sign of the zodiac Aries, with the, assigning it to the head, and then Taurus is the second sign, assigning it to the neck, and then Gemini the the arms and the shoulders, and just going all the way down the body until you get to Pisces and the feet. And this is like a very old association that I think we've recently traced back, or scholars have traced back to the Mesopotamian astrological tradition. Um, but it's one that's also kind of interesting, and I've I've occasionally seen as just really strikingly um, compelling in some instances. Like for example, one of the things I always thought felt compelling about that was I have Cancer on the sixth house, which is traditionally associated associated with illness, and the ruler is the Moon, which is an Aquarius. And as a kid growing up, I always had like stomach issues and issues with my stomach. And mm-hmm. Cancer and the Moon are the um, two primary areas that you look to for issues related to the stomach. Um, Mm -hmm. So I always thought that was a very interesting literal manifestation of those zodiacal assignments and planetary assignments to the body and medical astrology sort of working out pretty well for me. Mm -hmm. 
Or yeah. Not well, but working out very literally. <laughs> working out astrologer well. <laughs> astrologer good, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, have either of you, is that something that comes up in terms of herbalism with the zodiacal assignments to different body parts? Yeah. And I mean, the zodiacal man is like a really great re- beginning reference point for understanding different rulerships. And it has been around for a really, really long time. That image was just from like the mid 1800s from a newspaper in the US. But um, you can check out other books to see all of the other associations because Pisces rules the feet, but it also has a relationship with the lymphatic system and aspects of the stomach with Virgo. Um, while cancer, like aspects of the intestines rather than cancer, which more rules the stomach and the aspects of the lungs and things like that. Um, so there are a lot of delineations for body parts associated with signs. Judith Hill's books go through that. The Encyclopedia of Medical Astrology by Cornell has a lot of information like that. Um, my teacher, Claire Gallagher, has a book coming out that I'm sure she's going through all of that next year as well with which will have more like recent up-to-date medical information in it um, because Cornell's book is pretty old. But I will definitely look at someone's chart and notate um, the body areas that are associated with some of the placements that I see and then follow up with them and ask them some questions about that. Because like I said before, you might see a predisposition in the chart and it might not actually be coming to fruition. So I like to use the chart as a guiding light to help direct um, the types of questions that I ask to see if that's actually showing up for them or if it's ever showed up for them in the past before. Like I'm thinking about a client that I had last year who had the sun in Aquarius. I can't remember what his rising sign was, Um, but he also had Venus in Pisces. And he was experiencing a lot of digestive discomfort, a lot of digestive issues that really sounded like dysbiosis, which is like an overgrowth or an improper balance of bacteria in the microbiome, which is something that's very Venus and Pisces-y in that Pisces has a relationship with the digestive system. Um, And Venus is very moist and warm and lacks tone and like sweet things and all of these things can lead to dysbiosis. So when I saw that in this person's chart, um, I, you know, was instantly guided to note that down in my margins of this is something I need to ask this client about. And lo and behold, that was the primary issue this person was having. Um, and so we needed to remediate that very lovely Venus and Pisces that was manifesting into something that was really uncomfortable for them. Okay, that makes sense. Um, so, in terms of different sign assignments and different also planetary assignments of different planets with different parts of the body and the relationship there, um, are there anything I mentioned in passing, like an apothecary? But um, an apothecary is maybe a good local resource for people to think about if they're interested in, um, you know, le- not just learning more about herbs, but also like getting access to local herbs and finding people that are knowledgeable about that, right? Yeah, most places have an herb shop. Most major cities, at least, will have one or two. And, you know, an apothecary will have normally a stock of like single herbs in bulk bins and then prepared medicines and tinctures, ideally from local medicine makers, but that's not always the case. In the United States, at least, I can't really speak for other countries. 
The majority of what you'll see in commerce are like Western herbs. So it can actually be really difficult to find access to bioregional plants. Okay. And uh, so um, are there any other major points like I'm trying to think that we want to touch on or we meant to touch on when it comes to the relationship between astrology and herbalism? And uh, it's funny that a I forgot to mention the zodiac associations until so late. So I think there might be more like basic things that we could be forgetting. But is there anything else that comes to mind? I do think it's important to um, to emphasize that, like, just because something is natural or comes from the earth, that doesn't necessarily mean that it is safe to consume. Mm. Um, and so, if you are choosing to engage with um, any kind of practices that would involve the consumption of preparations of plants or the direct consumption of plants themselves, um, it is always, 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 always a good idea to do your research in terms of relative safety and any contraindications that particular herbs might have. Um, so, like we were talking about earlier with St. John's wort, you know, I think it's um, especially like SSRIs, you don't want to combine SSRIs and St. John's wort. Um, if you would like your SSRIs to continue doing their job in your body. Um, and there are other contraindications that are not necessarily direct to medications that you're consuming, but maybe other um, like physical uh, predispositions or ailments that you carry. Um, so it's like not all herbs are for all people <laughs> um, at all times in all doses. Um so that's that's one thing that I think is responsible to say yeah, as we're talking definitely. about these things. Thank you for mentioning safety. Mm -hmm. And also just because something might be well indicated for your chart doesn't mean you should go and buy it. Um, you don't have to take herbal medicine to engage with herbal medicine, which I know we've talked about a couple of times throughout this. But um, you know, you might have a you might see something in your chart that maybe you really, really need to fortify your son and Maybe you want to go spend some time with St. John's wort, but you can't take it because you're on medication. You could really just spend time with that plant. You can engage with it topically. There's so many different ways to do this. And ultimately, to have a really good grasp of astroherbalism, you have to have solid foundations in astrology and you have to have solid foundations in herbalism. So historically, you'll see a lot of texts, especially in like the 16 and 1700s in England, where there was a big movement of astro-herbal writing being done by people like Culpepper primarily and some other people around then. They'll just kind of say, this plant is for the sun in Leo, or this plant is for Venus and Taurus, X, Y, and Z. That doesn't necessarily mean that you should absolutely engage with it that way. Um, when they're saying things like that, it's kind of more like they're using astrological language to describe that plant. They're not necessarily just saying this is always what you should be using. Um, so astroherbalism can be kind of complex in that it really does require time and dedication and a commitment to cultivating relationships with the plants that you want to work with. You might spend 10 years learning 10 plants and that's great. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think like slowness is good. Um, you know, thinking about developing friendships instead of um, extractions, I think can be really useful if you're wanting to have um, really comprehensive and deep 
understandings of specific plants as they relate to planets, as well as specific planets as they relate to plants. Um, I don't know. I just generally at this point, like I have a really strong orientation of like um, encouraging people to um, study and observe virtues and then cultivate virtues um, as they relate to whatever it is that you're engaging with, whether that's a plant, a planet, um, a landscape, um, et cetera, like a color, whatever, just like really to be deliberate and um, intentional and not not rushing. I think mm-hmm. it can be, um, you know, this is my Saturn popping out, absolutely. <laughs> it can be really easy to be like, oh my God, there's this new thing that can add on to this thing that I'm already completely obsessed with. Like, let me consume every bit of information that I can. You're actually going to end up with a better understanding if you slow down enough to feel what you're learning in your physical system, particularly when it comes to plants and planets, because, you know, the plant planet link is that as above, so below link. And the so below is the, um, the incarnational embodiment component. Um, within this particular perspective, at least that Sarah and I share and are trying to disseminate out into the world. Um, like you're going to learn more about Venus through plants by, um, you know, deliberately engaging with, say, rose glycerite slowly and intentionally on Venus Day during Venus Hour than you will if you are um, creating an entirely intellectual compendium of the uses of rose. Yeah, definitely. And with the practice of like with that slowness, you know, you might experience moments where you just really think that a plant is ruled by a certain planet. And this was true for me. I didn't have a really strong language in astrology for many years. I just knew enough to um, influence my personal life, but not really have a practice. And I would look at a plant and I would say, oh my God, I think you're ruled by this planet. And I would feel so true for me but then I wouldn't have any of the language to describe why. So taking that time for slowness and to really cultivate the foundations will help you actually be able to form a robust idea of what it is you're trying to articulate about a certain plant or a planet. And then what ends up happening is when you're trying to make a correspondence, you basically come up with a hypothesis and then you test it against what you know to be true about that plant and what you know to be true about that planet. Combine that with a bit of intuition combine it with embodied experience, and then you can come to a final result. Um, So if you're like, I think Mullen is ruled by Saturn, but some people say it's ruled by Mercury. Some people might say it's ruled by the moon. Well, let's look at all of the facts and see how which planet does it share the most, um, and I don't want to say like similarity because rulership is not quite the same as affinity, um, but which planet has something really to say about Mullen? And for me, that's Saturn, but it takes a lot of time to be able to recognize that. And you got to know a lot about the plant. You got to research a lot about that plant to arrive to that um, planetary correspondence. That makes sense. And um, I think that was a really good point that also sometimes there can, it seems like there's a spectrum where there can be very like gentler herbs versus there can be more much more potent herbs. So that maybe there's some that are easier to experiment with without potentially too many side effects, but there's mm-hmm. others that might be like more serious or might want to be much more careful with or or use in lower doses. 
And also just um, in addition to that, that the effects of a new herbal regimen can sometimes be subtle or can only develop over an extended period of time. And sometimes um, there can occasionally be like unintended side effects of like the primary thing that you're trying to do so that you do have to be kind of careful and, and do that with some um, advice or some overview from an expert. Well, and you even just have to have a really good knowledge of your constitution. Nettles are extremely nourishing and generally applicable for most people. But if you have a really hot and dry constitution, um, or a really even just really cold and dry, if you just have a really dry constitution, nettles is probably going to exacerbate that dryness. So working with nettles on a re for a really long time might not actually feel good for your body. You might benefit from something like oat straw, which is also high in minerals, or you know some of our other mineral-rich herbs, like even red clover, things like that. So there is this spectrum of like, sure, we have low-dose botanicals. We have um, botanicals that, you know, as I think Paracelsus said, the dose determines the poison, right? Or you can take a small amount and it's fine. And it's actually going to have a really therapeutic uh, benefit. But some of these low-dose botanicals have small therapeutic windows. Um, you take too much and they might cause something as uncomfortable as throwing up a lot. Like if you take too much lobelia, it'll make you vomit. If you take too much zinc, if you take it on an empty stomach, it'll make you vomit. It's not just plants. Um, to them actually having major consequences, which is where we're thinking more about like poison plants and their relationship to Mars and Saturn and how they actually deliver their uh, unpleasant effects. Um, so there's those little bit, those botanicals you have to be careful of, but then you just generally want to be mindful of your constitution and the plants that you use. Whenever I'm in practice and people come to me and say, well, herbs don't work, it's either because they're taking an herb that's actually not well suited for their constitution or they haven't been taking it long enough. Most of the herbs that you find in commerce, especially ones that, you know, things like nettles, things like red clover, milky oats, these nutritive herbs, they're tonic plants. They need to be taken for long periods of time to see benefit. And this can be really difficult for people when they're first approaching herbalism because it's like kind of weird to make a big tea every day and drink it. But this is where I try to encourage people to remember that historically and ancestrally, herbalism was just part of our foodways. So you can get benefits from taking milky oats. You could also have a bowl of oatmeal. Mm -hmm. um, this is making me think about, um, you know, one one perspective that can sometimes be useful with thinking about the green world, like the vegetative world, is that it's entirely ruled by Venus, right? Like, you know, individual plants will then have uh, more, maybe more direct uh, managers of the planetary spheres, but like as a whole, it's Venusian. But to engage with planets or to engage with plants in a way that facilitates health and longevity, that's Saturn. Mm. That's a really so good point. So thinking about um, you know, the like the beauty, the attraction, the interconnectivity, the interrelationships um between plants and then between plants and humans requires Saturnian patience in order to really cultivate um, knowledge and health. Um, and yeah, I mean, I was, I was thinking about Saturn too when we were talking about doses and like um, intensities of plants, right? Where it's like if mullein is a Saturn plant, like mullein is fairly safe for like a lot of people in a lot of contexts. 
hellebore, which is also a Saturn plant, is poison. <laughs> and like, you know, like some of some of these plants too, it's like thinking even about magical uses, right? Where it's like astro herbalism absolutely gets wrapped into different kinds of magical practices. Um, you know, and like one of the things that has been um very aesthetically popular um lately is like especially when it comes to poison plants is these ideas of like flying ointments or um preparations of plants that facilitate hallucinogenic or um journeying experiences those are often plants that um are poisonous when consumed or engaged with in particular ways and it's the poison that actually facilitates certain kinds of experiences and it also requires like really strong levels of respect and boundaries that's Saturn. And it's not your boundaries, it's the boundaries of the plant itself. Like, what does it mean to engage with a plant, understanding that it has its own ideas about what a what kind of engagement is acceptable? And then the consequences of unacceptable engagement can be death if you are approaching plants disrespectfully. You're talking about things like ay ayahuasca or like mushrooms and things like that? Yeah. I mean, but also, you know, Dotra, um, um, henbane, wolfsbane, like, you know, there's, there are plants that are not as, um, like, uh, near to the equator and associated with, um, cultures that have been colonized. Like, there are, these sorts of more, um, or even ergot, right, in in Greece, right, where like as part of the illusion mysteries, I think, right, where it's like these are, um, you know, plants or plant-like, if we're talking about funguses and molds, um, substances that um, facilitate um, non-normal consciousness and also can be toxic if approached disrespectfully and without sufficient boundaries and preparation. Right. That makes sense. Um, I mentioned on the last episode that I did that somebody on Twitter had posted like the first time, this is only like vaguely related, but uh, maybe related, uh, first time that the scientist that first synthesized LSD took it like deliberately and Neptune was like right on the ascendant of that moment. But it just makes me think of that um, when it comes to some of these plants that might have a similar um, effect or be in the same territory in terms of the psychoactive like properties that they have. Mm -hmm. And that actually brings up another thing that astrology can assist with is understanding like natally, for example, like I have, again, Neptune can join the ruler of my ascendant. I have a sensitivity to specific kinds of substances that mean um, I'm functionally like a lightweight and I have to be very cautious about how much I consume of something because um, my what would otherwise be extremely strong Saturnian boundaries are eroded by Neptunian influence. Mm. Um, so there's like the natal concern in terms of like increased sensitivity. And then there's also transiting concern. Like um, I believe it was how Richard Tarnas even got into astrology was paying attention to how different people consuming the same doses of psychoactive substances at different times would have wildly different experiences. And so then looking at astrology, both natally and by transit, in order to better comprehend um, why there might be increased or decreased sensitivity or um, 
more or less pleasant experiences whenever engaging with substances that lead to alterations of consciousness and just alterations to the body, right? Alterations to like physical chemistry. Um, so that is another way that, you know, astro herbalism becomes functional, like applying astrology to um, engaging with plants and their substances and the chemicals that come from plants. Um, yeah, you can use the chart to understand if someone's going to be receptive to, I mean, you know, ethnogens and psychoactive plants are sexy, but going back to like the baseline of just average plants we're giving people, you can assess their chart to see how receptive to a protocol they might be. Mm -hmm. You can assess the chart to see how receptive to you as their practitioner they might be. This is why Diana and I work so well together. Mm -hmm. Yep. <laughs> it's because of her seventh house stuff and because Jupiter is the the functional ruler of my chart since my son is in Pisces. Um, you know, you can use astrology for so many different things. We know in all of life, but of course we can use it in the world of herbalism. And people have been doing it forever. Like some of the first original documents we have connecting plants and planets, I think is at least first century BCE. So people have always been drawing this, these conclusions and making these connections. Yeah, what you mentioned about um, Tarnas and his experiments with, I think, like Stanislav Grof about that they, they their claim was that um, there was no better diagnostic tool than paying attention to the transits that a person was having at the time that they took certain psychoactive substances that would tell them whether they would end up having a good experience or or a bad experience, and that makes me think of like electional astrology and and applying that of like what is the current like astrology weather for starting you know a new treatment of some sort or even just like paying attention to your transits and whether you're having like good transits or whether you're having kind of tough ones um in terms of starting a new healthcare regimen whether that involves herbs or other things that could be good to know about just as an additional piece of information for you know whether that's going to go well or whether you might run into some unexpected difficulties right and one way to think about that relationally is like, you know, for example, if you're in a time period where there's like a significant um, heaviness in terms of Saturnian transits um, or Saturnian influence upon your chart, like what does it mean to think about that as a time period where Saturn is like, I need you to learn about me and it will be painful unless you do it on purpose, or like it'll be extra painful if you aren't doing it on purpose. It'll be less painful, but probably still not your favorite. But I need you to learn about me. And so if we like turn to a, towards a planet that is really active for us at a at a period of time, in that relational way instead of just a context creating way, I feel like that can um, you know if that feels good to you. Not everybody will find this interesting or illuminative, but if that's interesting to you, that can really open up a different way to engage with that time period, right? Like going back to last year, Saturn-Pluto conjunction happening within a degree of my Venus, it's like what really deep restructurings and like grindings and uh, smeltings <laughs> um, have been necessary for me in terms of how I relate with Venus. That was co-occurring with my progressed Venus stationing, stationing retrograde. Right. And so it's like my obsession with roses uh, <laughs> is a real thing um, in terms of like the deepening, strengthening, restructuring, 
reconfiguring, um, just like completely altering um, through Saturnian and Plutonian lenses, how I understand Venus. When was that during the course of the year? Do you know exactly when it's stationed? August. In August, okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so over the summer, because I was also like, you're becoming more prominent. Like you gave that mm-hmm. talk at Norwalk, and that was mm-hmm. when I saw your talk and really liked it. And then you came on the podcast mm-hmm. after that, and it seemed like you also just tied into the Venus stationing thing. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, all right. So that's taking us down a, a specific thread in terms of one thing I didn't know. Do we need? Did we need to mention any sort of um, like medical proviso or anything like that in terms of like having given advice? Since we're not necessarily giving oh, advice, and yeah. it's very specific to each individual person and their medical <laughs> practitioner. None of this has been evaluated by the FDA. We are not yeah. diagnosing, treating, or prescribing. We're speaking of the historical context of medical astrology and how it was historically used for treatment. But yeah, and we're and we're talking about our own personal choices as we have engaged with these things. And anybody who decides to engage with these things should do it in a way that is maximally responsible for their own health and wellness, understanding that, you know, again, just because a plant is natural doesn't mean it's safe to consume in general or for you specifically. And we can't know that actually from here. Like we can get hints at these things, again, from the chart, from someone's temperament, some from someone's constitution. But the most like scientifically and medically responsible thing is to um, make sure you are checking with your healthcare providers before you start engaging with um, any kind of consumption of a plant that means that it is coming into your physical body. So even topically, like topical plant application is absorbed into the skin, which then get, comes into your body. Sitting by a plant, not touching it, like- Probably pretty cool. You could do that. Yeah, as long as you're like not a, sitting like on a, a rattlesnake <laughs> or something. you know, Like a c- cactus or something. Yeah. yeah. Or but, like don't, also, if you are going to relate with plants and you are just going to spend time with plants, get a positive ID. Um, yeah. You know, a like, lot. Under, know that you're actually engaging with that plant. Actually, actually. <laughs> yeah, like poison hemlock is not the same thing as Queen Anne's lace. Right. <laughs> mm, so people Even, can mis misidentify plants sometimes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's the, really easy too. Just like astrology, the herbal path is a lifelong one. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I've been practicing herbalism for ten years, and I know a lot about what I know, and there's still so much to learn. Like. If you spend just the first couple of years of your plant path with a guidebook, getting really familiar with some of the plants in your bioregion, learning about them, like it's definitely better to know five plants really, really well than it is to know a general idea about 50 plants. If you're going to relate with plants, you want to make sure that you really know them really, really well. So if you're going out into the world, you're going to the woods and you just are trying to get to know the plants around you and something really sparks your eye, Go get a guidebook, try to ID it, find an herbalist in your area or a horticulturist or a naturalist who does like guided plant walks who could maybe tell you about that plant. And just be sure that you're interfacing with what you think you're interfacing. I mean, the poison hemlock is one that gets talked a lot about in the foraging world. A lot of it's a lot of plants in the carrot family can kind of look like it, but even recently I saw in an herbalist group of someone getting poisoned by eating hemlock roots thinking that it was carrot roots. And that'll kill you, you know, Mm -hmm. like that's not something that's, it's an avoidable mistake. We just need to spend time getting to know our plants. 
I feel like people are aware of this when it comes to mycology, like mushroom hunting. Yeah. Right. That's um, what I was just thinking of, like dopey teenagers like picking mushrooms and like <laughs> eating them, thinking it will get you high, but instead just like Yeah, it's like literally they can kill you. And it's like right. you know, in the like in the same way that there are um a lot of mushrooms that look alike, where one of them will be extraordinarily toxic and one of them will just be extraordinarily delicious. Mm-hmm. Um that happens to maybe a slightly less extreme degree in the green plant world too. There's typically easier to spot clues. Um, mushrooms, their lookalikes, they're still, it, it's sometimes like really hard to identify. You could have a whole genus of particular mushrooms and half of them are really poisonous and the other half of the species in that genus are totally fine. So mushrooms can be really, really difficult to learn. Plants, you can usually spot something different. They'll have a slightly different leaf shape or they'll have different spots or colors on their stems or some will have hairs and the other won't. Or they'll have like Queen Anne's Lace has a little red dot right in the middle of its um, flowers. And so it's really easy to recognize that compared to something like hogweed or um, poison hemlock and water hemlock and things like that. So there are usually clues. You just have to really, really pay attention and have a basic grasp of botany. And there are so many people teaching herbalism these days. There are in-person classes that you can take. There, you know, I have an online school where I teach herbalism throughout the seasons each month. People do plant walks. Um, you could probably go to any thrift store or antique store near you and find some vintage, um, like local guidebook that's going to show you pictures of plants and flowers and things like that that are going to grow in the season near you. And if you're listening to the podcast right when it comes out, this is the perfect time to get outside and start learning about plants. The easiest way to identify plants is when they're in flower. And we're in the middle of summer here. So it's a really great time to get out there and just see what's around you and embark on a year-long journey of observing that plant through the seasons and even maybe observing its life cycle in relationship to transits, in relationship to the moon. The moon can be a great planet to connect with when you're trying to observe natural cycles in your body and in the world because it's really tangible and it's changing frequently so you can get a lot of information in a short period of time rather than watching you know, a year-long or two-year-long transit. Um, so there's so much you can do. You just got to really like step out there and start collecting information and, you know, build a passion for wanting to engage with this stuff because it's not as easy as just pulling up Culpepper's Complete Herbal and saying, well, this plant is ruled by this planet. That's how I'm going to think about it forever because um, someone's going to disagree with him. I disagree with him all the time. And you might find that you disagree with him when you actually come into relationship with that plant. Yeah, so it's a it's a whole field unto itself. Herbalism is, and it has several overlapping specialties, which are like things that people, um, you know, dedicate their entire life to. Yeah, yeah. I mean, some herbalists practice clinically. Some just work with their communities. Some just focus on one thing in particular. Like I've decided to really focus on astro herbalism because it's so fascinating to me and I love it. And I also Mm -hmm. have a really sweet Venus Jupiter trine that makes it really easy for me to interface with the outside world and with the more than human. Um, So it makes sense for me. 
I know herbalists who just focus on like digestive issues or who just focus on specific body systems. Like fertility or circulation or nervous system stuff. Like there's so many different avenues to go down, just like with astrology. Um, Right. So So if you go out and you try to find an herbalist and you're like, I heard heard about this thing called astro herbalism and they have no idea what you're talking about. Yeah, there's not many of us out here. Mm-hmm. Um, but Diana and I are hoping that we can bring this work to more people and bring this language to astrologers and to herbalists so that they can just deepen their relationships with their disciplines and cultivate a more embodied felt understanding of them. Mm-hmm. How are you going to do that? Or what's your, what's your program? What, um, uh, the two of you are, are getting ready to start teaching some classes soon, right? Mm-hmm. All right. Well, tell me tell me a little bit about that. What's what's going on? Yeah. So um, this idea, it's like a year and a half in the making. I think at this point, maybe even longer. Um, the whole time we've known each other, the entire I've basically time been very irritated. Um, like I would send Diana memes of uh, images like, on Instagram of people being like plants for X sign, and I would just be like rattling off in her DMs about how angry I was and because how they were wrong. <laughs> Well, or because they were they were they were not fully considered. Yeah, I think that's they, maybe a better way. There was of no reasoning. It. There was no reasoning mm-hmm. behind it. So I was like, well, maybe I could see how you got there, but could you explain it to me? Because this is not how I would think. And so, after me um, being quite angry about it for a while, I said to Diana, "Wow, what if we like we've been relating with plants and planets for a really long time? Diana has the language, the deeper language of astrology. I have the deeper language of herbalism." We should make something about this. Mm-hmm. So we've spent the last like eight months creating a course all about relational embodied astro herbalism. Mm-hmm. It's called that- Cole- oh. oh, sorry. I was gonna say it's called <laughs> Calesta Natura, which means the celestial nature. Um and um we've designed it to be as um amenable as possible to people who are new to either astrology or herbalism. So it's like herbalism for astrologers and astrology for herbalists. Um, but instead of it being oriented around creating a practitioner of astro herbalism in terms of like seeing clients, like giving you all of this information, um, it's actually about um, facilitating the development of embodied relationship with plants through planets and with planets through plants. Um, and I'm just, I'm so excited about it. (laughs) Yeah. We've been working extremely hard on it and it's been a really, as we've been working on it, it's been testing, uh, what we know of plants and planets, (laughs) testing the language that we have around plants and planets, forcing us to really acknowledge some of the relationships we have with plants and planets and other ones that we need to cultivate. It's been a really transformative experience for both of us. Um, that has just been born out of this desire to help people understand the intersections of astrology and herbalism by way of the body. So this program is not a medical astrology course. It's not a learn what this, like learn delineations and learn how to read a chart. This program is dedicated to helping you come into relationship And the way that we're doing that is through a combination of experiential live lectures, a bunch of supplemental materials to help you to help actually support your relationship building with plants and planets and a lot of community support. So each week we'll basically meet for two hours. Um, Well, for 10 weeks, we'll be meeting for two hours. The program's actually 13 weeks long. 
and we'll be discussing like the first two weeks we're going over basic info like basic foundational traditional astrology things you need to know for the purpose of this work basic herbal things you need to know and then each week we'll be going into the planets and we'll be exploring things like meditations and uh, planetary prayer and the characteristics of these planets and the characteristics of their plants and then giving you exercises to go out and do um, so that you can actually start interfacing with those planets and plants. So it's like giving you that intellectual grounded learning that you really need to have and then also helping you actually do the thing rather than just fill another notebook of correspondences that you might never use or even understand. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so part of this too is about developing um, the not just the brain knowledge, but the body knowledge that contributes to be a being able to um, reason through a correspondence. Because um, one of the issues that comes up with um, plant planet correspondences whenever you are only referencing texts that have been around for you know several several centuries um is that newer plants newer plants um or plants that are specific to your bioregion that were not known by ancient authors won't have correspondence lists even though they do have histories of being used medicinally by indigenous populations um or they're plants that just for whatever reason were ignored by ancient authors. And so to be able to actually understand on both an intellectual and an embodied level how a correspondence operates facilitates the capacity to then create your own correspondences for plants that are in your own bioregion, um, which is an important part of developing relationship with where you live on Earth and not yeah. just with like the abstraction, like the abstracted idea of plants but the specific ones that, you know, like what is, what's the, what's, the, which, what planet is responsible for Salvia Lucantha, also known as Mexican sage, which was not at all part of Culpepper's herbal because Culpepper didn't have in access England. Yeah. to Salvia Lucantha. <laughs> um, so, you know, what does it mean to engage with these things um, more intentionally? And, and then how does that engagement actually mm -hmm. increase your capacity for relationship with others as well? You know, relationship mm -hmm. with yourself, relationship with the wider world. Mm -hmm. And how does it help you understand your place in the world? Like, like the cosmos, not just the world, but the like the cosmos the universe, itself. Which yeah. is a big idea, a mm -hmm. big expansive idea. Um, but you know, nature can, it's, it's back to that as above, so below. Like if you really want to understand your place in the world, you can look to nature and see how you interface with it and see how you are a part of it. And this is just an extension of doing that. That also happens to support personal healing, also happens to support healing of the world. If more people were into plants, we'd probably have less environmental destruction happening all the time. And it can improve your practice as an herbalist if you're already seeing people. And same with astrology. Well, that sounds great. So when are you you're launching this next month? So the we'll be teaching a webinar for the program to kind of introduce people to the way that we engage with plants and planets on July 3rd. So I think if you're listening to the podcast right now, you should be able to go on our website, which I know Chris, you'll link in the show notes. Um, and access the webinar sign up. So there we'll be going through a guided meditation with a plant and a planet. We'll be going over some more of the basic information that you need to know about astro herbalism. And then at the end of that webinar, we'll be launching the course. So the course will be open for enrollment between July 3rd and July 11th of 2021. 
Okay. So during those dates, when you go on the website, you'll be able to access that. And then if you listen to this podcast in the future, if you're you know catching us from six months from now, um, we'll have the site up with a wait list. So if you miss this enrollment, you'll be able to add your information on for the next time we run it. Because we do yeah. intend on running this again. So if you can't yeah. join us this time around. And what are the exact dates of the course itself, Sarah? The course begins on July 14th. So it's, what, 13 weeks from that. I think it's going to end the second week of October. So we'll be meeting every Wednesday night um, for our live lectures. And then we'll also have office hours for one hour on Saturdays. And we'll have replays for everyone. So if you miss a week, there will be replays and transcriptions and all the stuff in our school dashboard. Cool. So what's the URL for those that are listening to the audio version? So it's celestenatura.com. So that's C-A-E-L-E-S-T-E-N-A-T-U-R-A.com. And if that's hard to remember, you'll be able to access it from both Diana and I's Instagrams as well. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I'll put a link to it in the show notes, either below in the description on the video on YouTube or on the Astrology Podcast website in the entry for this episode. Mm-hmm. Um, what are your Instagrams or social medias, by the way? I'm at Rowan and Sage, and that's my website as well, rowanandsage.com. And I am uh, Damashina, which I am, at some point I will probably change to something <laughs> that is easier to spell out loud. Uh, but if you search Diana Rose at this point, uh, there's a high likelihood that I will be pretty high in the list as you search on Instagram and Twitter. Um, and what's interesting is like both of our handles are about plants, right? Yeah. Like Sarah's is very obvious, Rowan and Sage. Um, and Damashena, Rosa Damashena is a specific varietal of rose um, that has been around for millennia and that is extremely useful medicinally. So, yeah. Nice. You are you're climbing the search rankings for Diana Rose to, I am, to be I the, am. like the, the primary Diana I'm, Rose. I think I might be, especially for people who are already kind of following other people that you would follow if you listen to this podcast. <laughs> there's a high likelihood that you won't have to dig very far to find me. Okay. I'm still battling the uh Chris, the West Side Strangler Brennan MMA fighter for my <laughs> for my top uh, search results in Google, but I've been winning out lately after a, a decade and a half long battle with with this guy. So Yeah. I, I mean at I some point relate. at some point his career will end because it's body based. Your career is just gonna keep that like solid upward Saturnian trajectory of just like legacy building. So maybe we'll we'll see. I mean, I wish him <laughs> the best. I mean, he's he's cool, but uh, yeah, I gotta I gotta beat him in that search ranking mm-hmm. results. So we'll see what happens. Um, thank you both for joining me today for this. This has been really interesting, and we've covered a surprising amount of ground in terms of time and history and different areas. And there's so many little subsections of this that could have been entire episodes on it on their own. So. Mm-hmm. Maybe we'll have to follow up at some point to do a follow-up to go more deeply into some of those areas. But I think in the meantime, people should definitely check out your website and check out your course because it sounds like that's going to go into everything in, in much greater depth mm-hmm. uh, yeah. than we were able to get to today. So yeah. so yeah, thanks for joining me today. Thanks for having us, Chris. Yeah, thanks so much. It was great to talk about this thing that we love so much and just mm-hmm. want to share with so many people. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Spreading the good word of relational astroherbalism. Like that's that's really the MO here. So Nice. I love it. We'll keep up the good work. Uh, Thanks a lot for joining me. Thanks everyone for listening to or watching this episode of the Astrology Podcast. And I think that's it. So thanks for watching and we'll see you again next time. Bye. 
Special thanks to all the patrons that supported the production of this episode of the Astrology Podcast through our page on Patreon.com. In particular, thanks to the patrons on our producers tier, including Nate Craddock, Thomas Miller, Catherine Conroy, Christy Moe, Ariana Amour, Mandy Ray, Angelique Nambo, Sumo Kopic, Nadia Habhab, Issa Sabah, Morgan McKinsey, and Jake Otero. For more information about how to become a patron and get access to exclusive subscriber benefits such as early access to new episodes, go to patreon.com slash astrologypodcast. Special thanks also to our sponsors, including the Mountain Astrologer magazine, available at mountainastrologer.com, the Honeycomb Collective Personal Astrological Almanacs, available at honeycomb.co, Astrogold Astrology Software for the Mac operating system, which is available at astrogold.io, and you can use the promo code ASTROPODCAST15 for a 15% discount, the Portland School of Astrology, available at portlandastrology.org, Astrogold Astrology app for iPhone and Android, which is also available at astrogold.io, and finally the Solar Fire Astrology Software program for Windows, which you can get from alabe.com, and you can use the promo code AP15 for a 15% discount.